0: AI, Freedom of Expression and Civil Liberties Hello and welcome to 39 Essex Chambers' AI and the Law podcast, hosted by me, David Mitchell. Today's episode will consider AI, freedom of expression and civil liberties, looking in particular at live facial recognition technologies from the point of view of the recent European Court of Human Rights case of Glukin and Russia, the EU AI Act and Developments in Other Jurisdictions. We're very lucky today to have as our guest, Barbara Bukovska of the Free Speech Organisation Article Ninety. Barbara, welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. First of all, if I could ask you please, before we get into the main subject of artificial intelligence, live facial recognition, if I could ask you for questions about your background as a lawyer, because I know you are a human rights lawyer and an activist. And at the start of your career, you undertook pioneering work in the field of race discrimination concerning Romani people in the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Can you give our listener a brief outline of what types of cases you're involved in?
1: Thank you, David. And first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure talking to you today. So indeed, I spent the first half of my career working for domestic human rights organizations in Czech Republic and Slovakia, and then later also in some other countries in Central and Eastern Europe. And I was actually championing this tool of strategic litigation to obtain justice for victims of human rights violations. And I primarily focus on the rights of Roma people, who are the most discriminated minority in that region. And I developed and litigated cases of Access, discrimination in access to public accommodation. So these are the cases when Roma would be denied services in pubs or restaurants. Also discrimination in access to housing, unemployment. And I mean you would say this is kind of obvious that people should have access to this kind of establishments. But at the time it was not obvious because the anti discrimination legislation was lacking and there was also not much aptitude in the society, protect rights of these people and also grant equal access to services. But also maybe what is interesting for the UK audience is that I also work on cases on denial of citizenship of Roma people in the Czech Republic because the country split from Slovakia and then they didn't get citizenship because although they lived in the country for all their life or were even born there. And I think about this often in the connection of this Windrush scandal on Shamima Begum, scandal which is going on in the media now because I built my work on this pioneering UK case, is African Asians versus UK, which was brought to European Commission on Human Rights. And I was trying to build a similar case, learning from the UK baristas who litigated this case. It's kind of sad to see how These cases are coming and these issues are coming back to the UK. But I think the most notoriety I got for litigating cases of forced sterilization of Romani women. So I brought European court cases challenging this practice and it led to some victories, not just concerning reproductive rights, but also access to medical records. And then also later litigated cases of mental health disability, people with mental health disabilities. And the area's right to vote, forced treatment in psychiatric hospitals, and this was against Russia, Estonia, Bulgaria, Hungary, and Czech Republic. But all of these cases, as this was in the civil law countries, the aim was to bring the case to the European court and get a precedent from the European Court of Human Rights, and also use litigation not just to gain victory for this particular victim in the case, but also address the practice through judicial precedence in the region for areas where legislation was not sufficiently developed, or also when the enforcement was lacking.
0: Thank you, Barbara. That's a fascinating introduction. How do you think that those experiences from your early career have shaped you as a lawyer?
1: I think that this experience has shaped me quite significantly because, first of all, I think that there are different tools in the arsenal which the human rights activists can use. And I always believed in both using courts for advancing human rights protection, but also working with the communities to use courts for their own advancement. And this is something we just often criticize for the human rights community. They are seen very kind of aloof or removed from the struggle. And I always believed in human rights and community lawyering, where you really work with the communities, help them build the arguments based on human rights arguments, not just activism and protesting, but also how the grassroots can use courts to advance protection of human rights. So that shaped me quite significantly and also always resisted for this approach that lawyers are this, you know, often white experts coming to disadvantaged communities and telling them what to do. So for me, these linkages between the community lawyering and strategic litigation was interesting. And I was Lucky to work on that in the region and bring this tool to the region, which was not so much used at the time. Someone has to start. And
0: you now work as the Senior Director for Law and Policy at Article 19, the free speech organisation, Article 19 being the right to freedom of expression under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Are you able to explain to the listener, Barbara, how Article 19 uses the law to promote free speech?
1: So as you said, Article 19 is this international organization with international office in London, but with regional offices and regional teams and around the globe, most of them in global majority countries. And we promote and protect freedom of expression through supporting human rights activists, journalists, human rights defenders, and broader community in using freedom of expression to advance protection of their rights and also defending those who are prosecuted for the right to freedom of expression. Of course, a lot of this involves uh, digital technology, which is now both used by activists in their work, but also used to suppress freedom of expression, either through the states or from the private sector. So we work on the level of policy and legal protection and enforcement, representing people and helping those who represent people, but also on the level of technical standards, where we try to make sure that when these technologies are developed, designed and then deployed, human rights standards and freedom of expression is built in into the design, development and deployment of these technologies.
0: We're going to go on and talk about how these technologies are used in the suppression of fundamental rights, but picking up on your point that they're also used by activists, what sort of examples did you have in mind?
1: When you talk about the digital rights, often you look at how states are deploying this technology to suppress dissent, how they are used to censor and oppress. But the technology has been actually very useful for the activists to mobilize. Also, when you look at often disadvantaged communities, let's say LGBTQI activists in Middle East, where they were able to use the technology for mobilization and also for exchange ideas, connecting themselves to global struggle and use the technology in their activism. So it's not just oppression, it's also positive use of technology for human rights protection.
0: Looking at the other side of the coin and the recent Strasbourg decision in the case of Nikolai Glukin against Russia, a case in which your organisation, Article 19, intervened. For those listeners who aren't familiar with the decision, by way of background, it's a seven-judge chamber decision of the Strasbourg Court from July, finding that Russia was in breach of Mr Glukin's Article 8 right to respect for private life and Article 10 right to freedom of expression. The factual background to the case was that Mr. Glukin had conducted a peaceful protest on his own on the Moscow Underground. He was protesting in support of a political activist called Mr. Konstantin Kotov, who earlier that month had been arrested and charged for conducting unlawful protests. Mr. Glukin's protest took the form of him carrying a life-size cardboard figure of Mr. Kotov, holding a banner stating, You must be expletive kidding me. I'm Konstantin Kotov. I'm facing up to five years in prison for peaceful protests. Mr. Glukin was arrested and fined approximately £250 pounds for himself conducting an unlawful protest. Therefore, in summary, the case involved a peaceful protest by Mr. Glukin protesting against the charges brought against another peaceful protester, Mr. Kotov, for undertaking a peaceful protest. It's a bit like a civil liberties version of a Russian doll. However, for the purposes of our discussion today, the case is of interest, because although the Russian authorities did not admit having identified and apprehended Mr Glukin using live facial recognition technologies, it seems, and the Strasbourg court proceeded on the assumption that this technology had to have been used, that was for a number of reasons. The process that led to Mr Glukin being arrested was as follows. First of all, The authorities had conducted surveillance in terms of monitoring the internet where images of his protest had been circulated. Secondly, they applied a facial recognition technology to identify him as the protester. Thirdly, they had collected images from CCTV where his protest had taken place. And fourthly, they then used live facial recognition to apprehend him when several days later, minding his own business, he was walking through a Moscow underground station. The activities by the Russian authorities amounted to processing of Mr Glukin's special category or sensitive personal data in that there was biometric processing of his face to identify him. There's also process and processing of data disclosing his political views. As I mentioned, Barbara's organization, Article 19, intervened. Can I ask you, first of all, Barbara, why the focus of this case was on free expression under Article 10 rather than Article 11 concerning the freedom of association and assembly, given that this was a protest or a protester case.
1: The reason why the case was addressed under Article 8 of the European Convention which guarantees freedom of speech and not Article 11 on freedom of assembly is because this was so-called solo demonstration or solo protest. So. Gluhin, the protester, was protesting on his own in the Moscow metro, so he didn't congregate with other people, or there was no group element of the case. And if you apply the right to assembly and association, it presumes that there is a bigger group of people, or more people than one or two, which didn't happen in this case. And Russian law is very broad, so it also requires notification for this kind of protest, which we argue is the violation of freedom of expression as well as, you know, obviously assembly when it concerns more people. So that was the entry point to it. And actually, it was the original reason why the lawyer who we work with came to us, because we also campaign against the notification and authorization regimes for public demonstrations and protests. However, there was this interesting aspect of facial recognition being used and biometric identification used. So that was a good moment for us to intervene as well, because we also work and uncover how this technology is actually used to stifle civic space, how it is used against protesters and activists who are exercising human rights and also how technology is not uh, restrictions on in relation to digital rights doesn't just happen online but also offline so how this online and offline war are interconnected and how technology also is used to restrict the freedom expression in public spaces so that was our entry point to the case and as you said the decision was as it was the european court found the violation of both rights and it's the first facial recognition case that this court actually decided. So it's quite important in that sense.
0: And what is the wider importance of this case, Barbara, or for that matter, if it doesn't have any wider importance, what are its limitations from a human rights and technological point of view?
1: I think that this decision was a victory for the privacy activists, First of all, as I already said, this was the very first case when the European Court addressed the use of facial recognition in protest. So it's already significant on its own, because if you look at the way how you advance the progressive jurisprudence of the European Court, you do it step by step. You don't just do one big bang, unless you are super lucky or unless it's a very kind of specific case. So in this kind of uh, situation, you need to build the jurisprudence in incremental steps. So that's important one. The second one it's that it actually came in a very important moment when these issues are debated on the political level worldwide, but more importantly or more immediately in the context of European Union, and it's also in the context of this framework convention that the Council of Europe is debating at the moment and negotiating. So it is really important for setting some basic standard in this area. And also we need to, sometimes people are a bit hesitant, like how does this impact the current discussions on the AI Act? And we can speak about it in terms of limitations, but the scope of the European Court is much broader than the EU state. So it also covers Council of Europe countries in a broader sense, in the Caucasus, in the West Balkans, in Russia, before it left Council of Europe. So I think that the significance of the case can not be understated. However... There are also some limitations, which when it comes to how it can guide what is happening in the negotiations with AI. And here, the court did not go as far as we wanted, which, to be honest, is to be expected from the court, because it didn't say that live facial recognition should be banned. So it didn't find this incompatibility between facial recognition And European human rights system. And it's just analyzed the compatibility of the use in this particular case with the European Convention and came to the conclusion which you already aren't But it's not unusual, to be honest, because European court always does this. However, and also it hasn't done it in many other freedom of expression cases. So for example, European court never said that criminal defamation should be banned as such. So it did not ban the facial recognition usage. And it just showed that it will evaluate the cases under this set test, which it already has for privacy violations and for freedom expression. And this is a shortcoming because it actually left decision. And from strategic litigation point of view, it didn't deliver the outcome one would want because it leaves the decision on the political forces. It leaves it on the legislature and the government to negotiate how this ban and usage of the technology should be legislated and used. Which, if you look at the theories of that court, it's expected. But sometimes we hope that the court will be more bold in its jurisprudence.
0: You point out the symbolic importance of this case in that it's the first decision at European level that deals with live facial recognition in the context of Articles 8 and Article 10. But if we put that context, and I appreciate it it is the all-important context, but if we put that to one side, then what do you say to the point that this is just another case involving an individual's fundamental rights being curtailed by an overbearing state, of which there's obviously a, a long litany in the Strasbourg jurisprudence, and it's the type of case that would have happened regardless of artificial intelligence, regardless of live facial recognition technology.
1: I do not agree with such assessment. I already addressed some of this in what I said before, that it provides some guidance how these kind of uh, cases should be assessed on the national level. It, first of all, it's the court says very clearly that there needs to be clear legal basis for this kind of intervention, which is not always the case in the countries in the Council of Europe. Right, So those countries which... I mentioned some of them, let's say Albania, West Balkans, Caucasus, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and so on. Their law has a lot to be desired in terms of how it is formulated. Then it also stated quite importantly that there was no prior authorization of the use or foreseen or no procedure for examining, using, and storing the data obtained and also for providing supervisory control mechanism and remedies, right? Right. So you can assert them from that, that if you are adopting legislation and if you are enforcing this kind of oversight of technology, these are the standards which should be met in those domestic laws. So I don't think that this is just some blip against authoritarian states, because you can call some of the countries which are in the Council of Europe non-authoritarian and do not have legislation and practices which would comply with this standard.
0: And on that theme of regulation, legislation, you mentioned the EU AI Act and as we know in the early summer the European Parliament voted to ban live facial recognition in public places on the basis it posed an unacceptable risk to fundamental rights and freedoms. Do you think that outright ban will be revisited by the council so that it, it doesn't find its way ultimately into the act? Or if it does find its way into the act, it's somewhat watered down?
1: So maybe I need to do like very brief like background of what are we talking about at AI, act because some people who might be listening might not be familiar with what is happening. So the three EU institutions, which is the Parliament, Council and the European Commission, Are negotiating the proposal to regulate artificial intelligence in EU member states, and more specifically, also establish the common rules and obligation for the providers and users. Users is the people who deploy the AI-based systems. And for simplification, divides those AI models into different risk categories. Into four risk categories. One is an acceptable risk, so these need to be prohibited. Then the high risk, these are the AI models which need to be assessed for their conformity with human rights. Then there is the limited risk, which need to be like transparent. And then there is a minimal risk, which needs to still meet some code of conduct, which is to be established. So when you talk how this ban will be watered down, you need to see it in the context of this division and this categorization of the technology, because here it's where the difference is between the free institutions come in. And indeed, facial recognition is the hot topic here. Because as you said, the European Parliament voted on the ban, and they want to ban the live facial recognition altogether. But they also want to ban some other technology, which is called emotion recognition system, and so on. They also look at the ban of post-remote biometric identification, which is slightly different use case of this technology, and they want to ban it unless certain specific conditions apply, right? So this is the position of the parliament. In the shorthand, ban it. But then the commission has a different proposal. So in your question, probably like water it down because it wants to qualify, categorize this technology as a high risk which you need to do the human rights assessment. And they want to ban the live facial recognition unless it's used for law enforcement purposes and they come with categories and proportionality uh, requirements and and so on. So one of them is in search for the crime victims, then also prevent the live and physical safety. And then there is also a category of serious offenses. So you can say the commission proposal is already kind of watering down what the parliament wants, and then the council is a tune still commission approach without overturning it. So they come with, with slightly different like modification of this proposal. So that's the trialogue. That's when the act is being negotiated. I think, and to make this long story short, and we need to see these differences, right? So it's not just parliament is for banning commissioners against banning. It's not so simple. But I don't think that if there is, total reversal or total removal of what the parliament voted, that would be a scandal. So it's more likely that there will be some changes introduced based on this commission and council proposal. And indeed, in your terminology, the ban will be watered down because there will be all these exceptions and there will be all this uh, national security crime and so on. Uh, qualification and different categorization of this technology instead of being totally prohibited as high risk. And then when the dangers come, because then everything becomes acceptable for the purposes of a crime or national security and so on. So yes, so there is this danger, but we are still in trialogue and we don't know what the final version of the law will be, but there will be definitely some pushes towards this direction.
0: Stepping aside from the European context for a moment, you'll be aware recently there was a, a vote or a statement of 65 cross-party members of the Commons and the Lords, of the Parliament here in the UK, seeking immediate moratorium on the use of live facial recognition for surveillance in the UK. Do you think that this might lead to a ban at this level in the UK, quite aside from what might transpire in the EU AI Act, whenever that comes into force 2025?
1: I think that's the question you need to ask those people who signed that letter, whether they are going to introduce this ban in the legislation. I think it's interesting that some technology companies themselves imposed self-moratorium due to major risk and harms uh, that this type of system perpetuate. So these are Microsoft, Amazon and IBM. So I think that if the UK wants to ban it, it can easily ban it, or at least impose moratorium. But that's uh, the question to be asked by those parliamentarians and members of the parliament because it's in their power to do so rather than call on the government uh, to introduce the legislation.
0: Perhaps if any of them are listening and they'd like to be interviewed as part of the 39 Essex Chambers podcast, they're very welcome to get in touch. But on that subject to do with moratoria and the, if you like, the business, the commercial side of this, do you think there's a risk that a ban in whatever form, here or in Europe, would stifle innovation and development on the part of businesses within those two areas, namely the EU and the UK? Is that a point of view that Article 19 would accept, Barbara?
1: Well, I always laugh at this kind of question, because when you say we need to be competitive... I mean, if it comes to violation of fundamental human rights, I don't think that we need to be competitive in the race to the bottom. Or if you ask me similarly, if we are going to clone human beings, or if China or some other countries are cloning human beings, is Europe need to be competitive in this? Or if we ban nuclear arms industry, are we going to be concerned about (laughs) nuclear arms industry competitiveness in Europe? So we don't do the same thing. And also we need to Keep in mind that here we are talking about the violation of fundamental rights, a technology which has a potential to violate fundamental rights. We are not talking about, because life facial recognition, we are not talking is if I use my phone as a disabled person to unlock it or if I use it in some sort of different settings, we are talking about really impact on human rights. So competitiveness there is a non-starter for me. However, it's not a non-starter for the European Union, because if you listen to recent speech of the president von der Leyen. She spoke about the competitiveness here and because she's getting a lot of this criticism for her Green Deal and how this is not making EU companies competitive. And they also brought Mario Draghi, who is a former prime minister of Italy from retirement, and the European Commission appointed him to be this special advisor on the EU competitiveness. So they are going to look at this but also what needs to be mentioned is that when you talk about competitiveness, it should not be just about race to the bottom. It actually can create an interesting user case for different kinds of businesses. So if you are coming with businesses which protect human rights, and if you raise awareness of people about how they need to be conscious of how technology restricts them to create a market for better technology. So when we talk about like, oh, we need to bring this technology ourselves because we will not be able to compete with the countries which you mentioned, I don't think that's the starting point we should be having.
0: And then broadening it out beyond Europe, if we can for a moment, Barbara, are you able to tell our listener about other work that Article 19 is involved in in the AI space outside Europe, the sorts of cases that you're testing and the issues that you are wanting to raise awareness about at the moment?
1: So, as I mentioned earlier, Article 19 is a global organisation, so we have operations in global majority countries, especially in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia, and here these uh, problems are even more pronounced because as compared to some of the European countries, They don't have such a robust protection of privacy, let's say, or there is no independence of judiciary or enforcement is very politicized. So we are also bringing cases and challenging the usage of this technology in the courts. And there we have had some victories which make it optimistic, the situation or some glimpse of optimism. So for instance, last year in May in Brazil, we won a case which the case is still pending. It's on an appeal. And in the first instance, the core ruled that Sao Paulo Metro, public transport, must stop using facial recognition in its networks. And this was brought under their uh, general law on data protection, consumer protection, and also code of users of public services. So that was a very positive outcome uh, of the litigation. So we'll see, see how this goes. But also, obviously, we are a part of cases representing people. We are also trying to bring some transparency to the way how this technology is procured by the public bodies and, and also private bodies. So looking at this a bit more broadly. Or another example is there is a case we have in Turkey on the use of so-called virtual patrols. So that's the use of software which is designed to monitor large number of users on social services and they are doing this through using a software which can extract data from your social media profiles, from Amazon purchases, from dating apps, dark web, and they can identify their personal interest and also map out their networks. So this is quite uh, important intrusion into the privacy and many other rights. So we are kind of building the case against the usage of this kind of t- technology and so-called virtual patrols or monitoring of the social media through technology of activists.
0: And what would that be used for? Is that a surveillance tool on the part of states or would it be used for commercial purposes or both?
1: So the company is offering it to law enforcement in this particular case. So it's used for law enforcement purposes in a clandestine manner. And it only comes up with this kind of like admissions, how they obtain the evidence. And this was similar to him because as you said, they never admitted that they used facial recognition or they used the, some software, but then told the activist how he was contacted. So yes, so it's a spyware surveillance tool to monitor the activities, to restrict dissent and activism, because it's used against journalists, activists, protesters, and others.
0: So do you think, Barbara, that there's likely to be a divergence in terms of regulation, and for that matter, in terms of jurisprudence between, say, Europe and countries outside? For instance, you mentioned Asia in one of the answers that you gave earlier. Do you think it's likely that we're going to see very different law and technology surrounding AI, particularly in terms of the state surveillance use of AI in the future?
1: Yes, I definitely think that there is a divergence for different reasons. First of all, there is much less recognition of the need of data protection, although the activists are pushing for stronger legislation on data protection, which the countries are often unwilling to adopt. Or if they have something, the the legislation wouldn't meet international freedom of expression and privacy standards. Then there is also a problem of the lack of rule of law in general, and politicized enforcement, and then also not having enough like institutional or, you know, regulatory capacity against this kind of technology. So that already presupposes quite a lower level of protection in these countries. But also, I think we need beyond kind of looking at the individual countries, also stronger institutional and legislative and normative protection against the trade and deployment and sale of this kind of technology. Because this is also one of the key problems which we see in some of the global majority countries where the the companies are kind of creating the demand for this technology, even when it is not there, because they come and try to offer technology, and this is called tech solutionism, as something which is going to magically answer all the problems which the countries are facing. So, for example, if you look at the issue of smart cities, it's presented as something which is going to get better, where the problems with the governance or with the way how the public services are offered are going to be magically solved by this use of technology, which will be done through data collection, storage, and sharing. And it's especially in these like global South countries where we see that the technology is being applied to these complex social problems with very little benefits to those who already enjoy a certain level of privilege. And then it's also used against the minorities. It's used against people who are on the margins of the society, for example, in China, Uyghurs, or, you know, in uh, Mina LGBTQI activists. So this is actually type of technology which exacerbates the marginalization and inequalities in the society and distribution of resources. So that's something which we need to keep in mind when we talk about the ban of this kind of technology in Global South.
0: I see. So focusing really more on the issue at source in terms of how these technologies are developed rather than just concentrating on the effect and the the adverse effect that they have on individuals who are subject to them.
1: But also how they are sold, how they are purchased by the countries, what is the procurement, how is this done? on whose demands of bringing the transparency, which is an important aspect of freedom of expression, to the picture.
0: Well, Barbara, thank you for sharing all of those thoughts around your experience of legal work in this area, which is fascinating. Can I ask you at the end, by way of closing, everyone who Catherine and I have interviewed as part of this podcast, we've asked them the same question at the end which I've termed the Panglossian dystopian scale, namely on a scale of 0 to 10 or or 1 to 10. I think Catherine um, framed it in the, the last discussion she had how pessimistic or optimistic moving from 0 through to 10 you are in terms of artificial intelligence, what it will do for the law, what it will do for society. Do you think at 10 it will be a panacea? Like for all the world's ills or right at the bottom of the scale, do you have a, a sort of dystopian vision of how this might all end up? Where on that scale would you place yourself, Barbara?
1: I will place myself with the typical legal answer or the lawyer answer saying it depends. But I can't say that, can I?
0: You can try, but it won't do. <laughs> You'll have to commit to a number, I'm afraid. Okay,
1: I need to commit to a number. So then I put myself to the middle, a five. Because although I think it's quite dire... And also the fact that there is no global or societal conversation about the kind of technology we want to have. There are some glimpses of hope. So I put myself in the middle.
0: Thank you for that, Barbara. And thank you very much for sharing your time today. And thank you to our listeners. If you've enjoyed this discussion today on freedom of expression and civil liberties from the point of view of AI, I would invite you to have a look at Chambers' website or to follow us on social media where you'll find more episodes from our Law and AI podcast. Thank you.